This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Base Layer. On today's episode, we have Spencer Noon joining us. Spencer runs DTC Capital, which is a fund focused on crypto backed by a family office. We had a great conversation with Spencer. It had a wide-ranging uh, view on one of the aspects of, of crypto, uh, focusing on Ethereum, which Spencer uh, spends a lot of time on. Uh, Spencer is a really important person within the ecosystem. He has a Telegram room with some of the best and most prominent investors and builders in crypto. And he talked about a lot of different things and the innovations happening with Ethereum. What did you think about it, Amanda? I think the most interesting part of the conversation for me was the various touch points in Ethereum um, where there's a lot of technical innovation, whether it's Constantinople or Serenity or ZK Snarks, so zero knowledge proofs, either for scaling or for privacy and transactions. Um, and all of these different technical pieces can either diverge or converge in interesting ways. So I'm excited to see how the Ethereum ecosystem unfolds and which of these technologies wins out. We also learned a little bit more about what Spencer is reading, how he learns about crypto, and the way that he's processing a lot of the information that's happening in real time. It, again, it was a wide-ranging conversation, and I really enjoyed it. I know you did too, Amanda. And so for our listeners, I'll have Amanda talk about our Do Your Own Research clause. All right, guys, as everyone knows, um, nothing on this podcast is legal advice or financial advice or should be construed as such. Please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor and then the interview with Spencer. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. Today's episode, we have a special guest, Spencer Noon. How are you doing, Spencer? Hey, guys. Um, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure having you. We had the, the luck uh, and the pleasure of having Spencer uh, be a moderator for an event we hosted in September called FO256. And Spencer is a really um, impressive person within the community. Um, he also hosts a, uh, a Telegram room, which is probably one of the best ones out there where you have some of the best investors and builders in crypto. And so if it would be possible, Spencer, maybe you can spend you know about a minute just giving a little bit of a brief bio. And instead of talking about kind of the how or necessarily uh, kind of, you know, how you got into Bitcoin, I'd like to know more about why and why it became such an important part of your professional career. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm an investor at um, Doggy Tail Crypto Capital. It's kind of an interesting name. Most people call us DTC Capital. We're a crypto fund 
backed by a single family office down in South Florida. Um, and we invest across the broad spectrum of crypto assets. So from your early stage projects um, to more mature assets like um, Ether. And I started in the space in um, 2014 formally, started up a Bitcoin ATM network. Um, and I think what drew me to crypto just in general was upon reading the Bitcoin white paper and being exposed to you know, some of the guiding principles that the idea of um, decentralization and the guarantees that it gives participants in those systems, um, it just struck me as an inevitability. Um, that's something that was going to happen in my lifetime. And I think that coupled with the opportunity to make an outsized impact as an early participant in the space um, immediately sucked me into to, you know, working with um, crypto. And, you know, I think me, I, I have a, a little bit of an interest in um, more sci-fi topics as well. And I think, David, you, you probably know this, but um, there's just so many different ways that you can take um, crypto networks when they're fully mature that get really, really sci-fi. And so I love that as well. I think you're referring to my Medium post about crypto in 2053. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was, uh, I was reading a lot of Philip K. Dick and I was listening to a lot of the Blade Runner soundtrack and it just, I just wanted to play with it and see kind of where my mind would go. And, you know, I know you read the article and you gave me a lot of input into that. And so I think I'm going to do it again because it was fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, Spencer, I think that one of the most interesting things about your focus in the crypto space is uh, particularly your focus on Ethereum. Um, and one of the uh, big pieces of news that came out recently is that Constantinople, which, which is a system-wide upgrade to the system that was supposed to be released in mid-January, has actually been proposed um, to the end of February. So can you could tell us a little bit about why that's important and what some of the ramifications of that could be? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Ethereum community does hard forks um, every so often um, in order to upgrade the network. And they're relatively straightforward, um, but they require a ton of planning. Um, and when you think about all the constituents in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have different developers, you have different dApps who are building applications, you have all the different clients. Um, the list kind of goes on exchanges, right? Everyone needs to be on the exact same page um, when an upgrade goes through. And also um, you can't mess up. Even the smallest thing um, could make it such that, you know, you have major, major problems, right? Because you have tons and tons of assets that are being issued on top of Ethereum um, and applications. And even just, you know, introducing one bug like we saw with, um, uh, the parity hack could potentially freeze hundreds of millions of dollars. And so what you've seen is as Ethereum has matured, um, the core development team has been very conservative in um, upgrading the blockchain and make, making sure that, um, you know, no stone, stone is left unturned before doing so. And so Constantinople, um, they, you know, at the last hour, basically, they uncovered um, something that, uh, would have made a certain class of smart contracts, um, uh, I guess, uh, 
they would it would have made a certain class of smart contracts susceptible to a bug and they decided that they would rather um, fix that and kind of push back the upgrade until everything is resolved and so that is in the process of happening. Um, I think the new fork date has been set for later in February. And I think the big you know, point, it's not, it's not a huge deal, um, but it just demonstrates kind of the conservatism of the protocol. So I think it's important to define that while you obviously are a believer in the technology, you're a believer in crypto that you really focus much you you have a focus or you you definitely see more value maybe yes or maybe maybe no tell me if you believe but ethereum versus bitcoin there's obviously there are camps out there that are bitcoin maximalists like we had matt walsh on a few weeks ago with castle island and you are considered or maybe possibly you tell me what you want to call yourself but in terms of ethereum you I, you've been on twitter you've been on social how would you define yourself in terms of your your, your beliefs on ethereum versus bitcoin today yeah, no, I think that's a good question, and and I often get it. And like full disclosure, I'm an investor in in both assets. Um, I think for me, um, Ethereum's value proposition um, just speaks to me more, and I'm more of a believer in it. And it really comes down to the idea of um, programmable value or programmable money. Um, there are simple things that you can do with with Bitcoin. Um, it has a limited scripting language, but with something like Ethereum, when you have a basically Turing complete um, smart contract platform, the design space and the things that you can do with that are boundless. And so, you know, I think we're in the really, really early innings of the different types of applications that Ethereum could support. But I think um, long term, I'm most bullish on on Ethereum and other smart contracts for, for what it's um, worth as kind of realizing and unlocking the full potential of crypto systems. So you, you brought it up briefly, but you said, you know, there is this notion, there is this difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum in regards to smart contracts. Bitcoin has script and Ethereum is obviously uh, has a capacity for smart contracts. For the listeners out there, other fellow family offices out there, people are trying to get their heads around this all. Can you break that down a little bit more? Sure. Um, so I think the best way to think about it is um, developers need to write applications in programming languages, right? And um, there are a, a variety of programming languages that people use um, with, but ultimately they kind of allow you to do really anything that you want. Um, and with something like Bitcoin, Satoshi, um, when the platform was launched, had um, the, these um, things called opcodes that were pieces of Bitcoin script. And so you could um, enable or disable certain opcodes to um, have a certain functionality work. And so what Bitcoin did was they decided to remove a lot of opcodes and only have a few opcodes in general, such that um, only the most basic kind of transactions could, could work in the network. Um, on the flip side with Ethereum, they said, you know, we want to encapsulate with our platform 
um, as many applications as possible. They had that vision of being a world computer. So with that, um, they wanted to make the design space about as equal as what it would be with the centralized application. So this is writing um, very like in-depth functions, um, uh, like recursive programs and other things that um, would let you really construct anything within the basic parameters of, of the system. And so I think that's how I look at um, the differences because uh, I guess with Ethereum, there's just more that you can do when you're not constricted by the programming language. And so with Ethereum having this larger bandwidth, there's um, quite a bit of conversation in the community about what kind of heuristics you can really turn to to measure um, quote unquote success of a platform like Ethereum, right? So people talk about things like um, daily active users, transactions per second, um, pace of development. So w what's happening with these different kinds of metrics and how should people really be turning to different metrics in order to measure progress on Ethereum? Are, are they all misinformed data points or do some of them have, still have core value? Yeah, I, I don't know who was talking about this on Twitter, but they made a point that was like, you know, as soon as a metric is recognized in the community, it no longer serves its purpose. I think that was Nick Carter. Um, and I think that's totally spot on because what we've seen is just a lot of metrics can either be politicized like daily active users or gamed. Um, and so, you know, I think a really good example of, uh, uh, you know, metrics being gamed is this daily active users um, with platforms like EOS, for example, um, you have, because there are no transaction fees, some dApps that will just basically send or do, do transactions back and forth with each other in order to be at the top of um, a DAP radar or some other website that ranks um, applications by you know, the amount of transactions that they're doing. And so kind of all of that is to say that there is no, I'd say silver bullet metric to measure the health of a blockchain. You really have to look at it um, you know, in many different ways and develop a, a holistic picture of things. And so, um, you know, one of the ones that I think is an important piece of the puzzle is how much Ethereum, uh, how much Ether is locked up as collateral in smart contracts, um, because that shows me, um, you know, users are willing to use Ether as money um, and, you know, developing a monetary premium, I think is a really important thing for um, the network just in, in terms of its long-term value proposition. So I look at things like that. Um, and then it really depends on the application itself. Um, I'll give you guys an example for why I find daily active users on, on the network to be a little bit of a misleading um, uh, indicator. So with something like Augur, right, that's a prediction market, um, if, if the, the way that these, um, you know, the way that a daily active user would be calculated by a lot of the websites um, out there today would be by taking the um, you know daily unique active addresses that are making a transaction, um, but this fails to capture the people who are opening up Augur every single day and you know perusing the different markets to see if they want to take play um, you know you know trade in any of them. Um, it really um, only 
gets and drills down into the people that are actually making a transaction, which as you can see, um, doesn't complete the entire picture. Um, I think it's just, you know, a framework for evaluating um, fundamental metrics in crypto networks is this emerging thing. It's really, really hard to do. Um, new techniques are being put forth every single day. And I think the community is doing a really good job of, you know, parsing out what's important and what's not, but it's a difficult challenge. And so I, I think just to segue into kind of further deeping, uh, a deep dive into Ethereum, in terms of innovation, in terms of how they're actually trying to get more users, more developers, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things that have been um, discussed over the last few months? Serenity, uh, Vitalik obviously brought up that. Um, I know that, you know, obviously Plasma had its fits and starts. They've now been talking about introducing uh, zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, Casper, what are some of the innovations that you're currently watching right now or do you, that you actually feel could be a game-changer if there needs to be a game-changer for Ethereum? What are you currently, you know, seeing in terms of innovation in Ethereum right now that could, you know, increase the active users that, you know, and um, the developers. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of the mindshare that we see with Ethereum right now as a platform um, centers around Serenity. Um, and so I'm happy to talk a little bit about Serenity and then get into some of the other innovations. Um, but Serenity is a, um, it's a, essentially a complete overhaul of Ethereum's current design in order to handle more transactions. Um, right now, the Ethereum network handles about 15 transactions per second. And with um, the Serenity upgrade, it does two things that makes um, you know, the number of transactions that it can handle um, orders of magnitude greater. So first, what it does is it swaps in a new consensus mechanism called proof of stake. So proof of stake is more environmentally friendly than um, what Bitcoin and Ethereum today uses, which is proof of work. It's a bit wasteful. Um, but importantly, it also offers what is called tra um, transaction finality, which is um, when I send a transaction on the network, um, I can be sure after a certain amount of time that that transaction won't be reverted. And, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum today have something which is called probabilistic finality. Um, when I send a transaction, I can be, you know, very, very sure that it's not going to be reverted, but um, it's still possible, right? And with that guarantee of finality, you're able to do the second thing um, that Serenity has for, for scaling, which is called full, full state sharding. Um, and what full state sharding is, it's actually, it's a good, um, a good way to, to talk about it is to talk about how Ethereum nodes work today. So right now, um, anyone can run an Ethereum node and they will be processing every single transaction on the network and maintaining the entire state of the Ethereum global ledger. And I need a relatively performant computer to do that today. I could still do it on my MacBook. Um, but every day, the size of the state is growing, right? And so it stands to reason that, you know, after many years, it will be, be, it will be too big for um, a laptop to be able to do. 
And that hurts your decentralization. If only data centers are able to um, do this process, then um, you know there are there are guarantees related to censorship resistance, which could fail. Um, and so with sharding, the idea is you split that full state into multiple parts. Um, Serenity has 1,024 shards, and you have groups of nodes that validate um, each of those shards. And together, that gets you that full state. Um, and so when you hear people like Vitalik, um, Buterin, and others, um, other Ethereum core developers talk about it, Serenity plus some of the layer two infrastructure that is also being built will be leveraged simultaneously. And when you use layer two and layer one together, um, those effects of scalability compound upon each other. And you now get a system which can support millions of transactions per second and kind of um, you know, has that, I guess, fulfills that world computer vision um, that we were originally exposed to upon hearing about Ethereum. The third thing, and I actually just have one more thing that I wanted to say about um, about Serenity is, you know, proof of stake, full state sharding, those are those are really important as it relates to scaling. But there's another thing um, that I think is starting to emerge in the discussion and, and also extremely important in my opinion. And that is it's establishing um, a credible and future-proof monetary policy. So when Serenity launches, um, the issuance rate of Ether will be um, between 0.5% and 1% forever. So, you know, in the same way that Bitcoin has 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be produced, um, the same kind of meme will be around for Ethereum, which is there will never be greater than 1% inflation on the network. And I think that's really important because it bolsters Ethereum's case um, for a store of value, right? And it gives investors confidence that um, their asset that they hold is not going to be inflated out from underneath them arbitrarily. So I don't know if this is getting a little too far into the weeds, but when you talk about inflation rate for Ethereum, so w when you think of the traditional U.S. economy, a 2% inflation rate um, approximately is typically what's targeted um, because of the way it interacts with economic growth and other factors. So how did the Ethereum community arrive at this um, 0 0.5 to 1% range. Yeah, no, and this would be getting definitely a little bit into the weeds. Um, okay. the, the basic idea, though, is that um, the, the researchers at the Ethereum Foundation um, want to be cognizant that they're not doing more inflation that is, you know, um, uh, ruins kind of the ability for Ethereum to store value, right? If, if, um, there's just so much Ethereum coming onto the open market and the price of Ethereum is low, then um, the security of the network could be um, vulnerable. Um, you know, if I can buy up a lot of stake in a proof of stake system because the price of Ethereum is so low, um, I could, in, in theory, attack the network. And so 1% is this convergence of um, enough, enough supply to maintain like adequate security um, but without being too much. And so um, I think in the future, um, you're going to see a lot of discussion and research emerge on how, you know, whether it's closer to 1% or more like 0.5%. Um, and that, but that's probably a discussion for another day. 
Um, so then I guess taking a step back for a second, back into the macro of Ethereum, um, there's there's been arguments coming out that Ethereum could potentially be starting to have sort of a, a Lindy effect with developers, right? Like, do you think that there are other smart contract platforms that could threaten Ethereum's presence? Or do you think that it's still going to remain, um, I guess, dominant and why? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So I, excuse me, I think um, it certainly is demonstrating this idea of being robust and anti-fragile. And I think that really starts with um, the Ethereum community. You have, um, I think the, the last uh, numbers out of consensus were that there are over 300,000 um, Ethereum developers in the ecosystem with 30,000 you know, coming on board every month. So those numbers are, are staggering. And I think when you wanna build a blockchain project as a new developer in the space, um, Ethereum is far and away the place to go um, because it's the easiest to do so. Um, with all that said, I, you know, this is kind of going back to the like maximalism question. I'm not a maximalist. So I think that in the future, we're going to have multiple um, winning smart contract platforms that um, all offer kind of different strengths and have different trade-offs. And so um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. There are, there are other promising platforms that I really like that um, I'm investors in, and I could definitely see um, them working in a complementary fashion to Ethereum. Would you agree that most Bitcoin maximalists today really don't want to see, at least at the base layer, smart contracts really in the ecosystem because it, it increases the attack vector of Bitcoin? You know, I don't want to. I don't want to speak for the Bitcoin community, but from an you know, an outsider looking in, and for someone who's been monitoring the community for quite some time, um, I don't think that broad consensus has emerged uh, to support um, you know any of any increased functionality in Bitcoin. Um, there are ways in which you could have some of these features get added but they increase what the Bitcoin community, you know, terms as a greater attack surface for um, the network. And so, you know, they've decided that it's not something that they're going to jump the gun to support. Um, and I think that's totally fine. So that notion right there then says that there's going to be more than, because a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists, and I, I think Bitcoin has a massive role in, in the ecosystem. You know, it can obviously be a money it can obviously, you know, replace gold. It can be a digital gold. But at the end of the day, it seems, and I agree with you, that the majority of the community does not want to see smart contracts, RSK, IV, et cetera, really be implemented. They want it to be, you know, quote unquote, pure. They want it to be a store value. They want it to be digital gold. And so if we were to see multiplier you know, effects of, of crypto within you know, utility within contracts, et cetera, et cetera, we would need to have other smart contracts, other protocols. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, if I had to um, make a wager on how the kind of ecosystem took shape over the coming um, years. I think that we would see Bitcoin continue to stay in its lane as value um, and it being this, you know, incredible store of value and, you know, the other kind of work uh, being farmed out to other blockchains. 
Um, so one thing I want to circle back to, it's, it's, it's not directly related to the interoperability idea, but more about uh, cross-project and cross-chain sort of innovation. So there's been a lot of discussion recently around ZK-SNARKs and possible implementation of ZK-SNARK technology in Ethereum, which if, if you would have asked people in crypto um, you know, several years ago if they thought that there would be discussion of SNARKs in Ethereum, I think everyone would have thought we were crazy. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how uh, Ethereum is innovating cross-project and how you think that'll help Ethereum's uh, long-term viability as well as its ability to scale? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the way that I think about um, SNARKs and or you know just zero-knowledge tools um, broadly um, with a platform like Ethereum is, you touched on this, there's the privacy aspect of it. Um, zero knowledge was made um, really kind of um, big and kind of the public awareness uh, through Zcash and then also through stuff like scalability, um, which I'll get into in a second. With, with zero knowledge um, as a privacy tool, the Ethereum community is basically taking a lot of the work that has been done by Zcash and other prominent researchers in the field and implementing it on top of Ethereum. And so it's not, you know, the way I like to say it is they're standing on the shoulders of giants. And um, it's possible that zero knowledge um, technology will be used in the Ethereum ecosystem broadly. Um, we've already seen uh, protocols like Aztec emerge where you can send other assets in, in DAI, um, which is a stable coin, to other people um, using zero knowledge tech. And I think that's really compelling, but I don't really know what the, um, I guess the end state of that looks like. We're gonna have to see an experiment with, um, with all the different implementations and see what the market actually wants. Um, I do think also that's, you know, zero knowledge tools for scalability are, are really interesting and a, a fascinating area of, of innovation in the community that um, I'm definitely looking at. Um, you know, you can submit a proof with zero knowledge that you've done something. And so you can, you know, with scalability, I can be a third party. I can process, you know, 500 transactions and then just submit one proof on chain that those 500 transactions happened, removing a lot of the bloat um, that you would have gotten if you went directly on chain for all of those things. And so we've seen some tools or we've seen some developments related to that. And that's certainly something that I think um, is worth keeping an eye on in the future, um, for sure. And so thinking outside of the box, you know, we've talked about scalability, we've talked about the innovation that Ethereum is currently undergoing. What are, if you were to kind of put on your, you know, your your future cap and, you know, get into your DeLorean and go into the future, you know, in the next few years, the next 5, 10, 15 years, what do you think Ethereum's role is going to be in society? Do you think it's going to be, do you think we'll have lots of smart contract systems out there? Do you think that will have DAOs? Um, what are some of your opinions about what the future, you know, kind of in society and Ethereum's role is going to be? Yeah, so I think... The way I like to think about it is the kind of here and now. And so what the future looks like in the next year and then also, you know, five, 10, 15 years. And, and so 
if I can start quickly with just a year, um, you know, I think people in uh, the space, they really look at serenity as um, what is, you know, what Ethereum absolutely needs to do. And I think if you're just focusing on that, you're missing a little bit of the big picture. Um, you know, with traditional technology companies and the equity markets, you often have, um, you know, a core business, which is something these companies already do well. And then you have a growth opportunity, which is something they're working towards in the future. And so I think when you think about Ethereum today, um, Serenity is really that growth um, opportunity. And the reason that it's already, you know, the core business that Ethereum has is this idea of programmable value. Um, and so the innovations that we currently see happening, um, really, it's a lot um, of open finance, which I'm not sure if you guys have gone over this with your listeners before, but this idea of this emergent parallel um, alternative financial system that is being built right now before our very eyes in the Ethereum community. So that's applications and in infrastructure like trading, lending, derivatives, prediction markets, um, all of these things allowing you know this vision to have the unbanked become banked and get basic financial services or people who for whatever reason um, don't want to you know partake in you know the centralized um, banking sector that we have perhaps they want to go outside of it this is a real viable opportunity for them to do so um, and so when i think about open finance today and how ethereum is really being quite successful at, at what it does best um, it's really three different things it's the collateral ETH being used as collateral that we talked about um, you know almost two percent of ETH is locked up in smart contracts um, but it's also number two, um, Ethereum is this platform for tokenization. So you already have close to a billion dollars of um, money that is uh, that are stable coins on top of the network. And you know, I think in time over the the um, next few years, more and more people will be transacting with these stable coins and Think about what you can do with remittances, with payments, and, and all of these different things, um, not having to deal with T plus three um, or wire transfers or anything like that. Just being able to send $1 from a wallet, um, that's a really compelling opportunity that doesn't require you know, serenity level scale, right? Um, and then thirdly, I think the ecosystem that is currently emerging, and so we've, we've seen our first kind of killer application with Ethereum, um, which is MakerDAO. And um, for those of you who kind of, you know, the listeners who, who don't know what Maker does, it's, um, it's a, a decentralized uh, loan platform and stablecoin platform. So it's already issued, you know, 72 or $3 million worth of, of DAI. And the way that um, it scales is through these loans. And I think this is just such a good example of why smart contracts are, you know, some of the most exciting things that we've ever seen. Um, right now, I can go into the Maker um, CDP portal or go to InstaDAP or one other companies, and I can open a loan um, for $10,000 for one year 
and only pay $50 in interest. I mean, you can't get an interest rate that low anywhere in the centralized ecosystem. I can borrow $100,000 for only $500 for a year. Um, now, you need collateral to be able to kind of put that up first, but we've really never seen anything like that in, in the history of finance um, where anyone can go in and they don't need to provide you know, identity information, employment history, credit history, or anything like that. They can just go get a loan. Um, and so I think that's just a really, really exciting um, opportunity that um, decentralized finance, open finance is offering that, um, you know, is, is, doesn't need a super scalable platform um, to work. So that's like my near term vision. It's, um, you know, I think it, like I said before, doesn't require multiple transactions per second, you know, millions of transactions per second um, or anything like that. But in the future, you know, David, you asked, like you talked about DAOs and, um, and other things. Um, it's, it's so hard to even predict what the future will look like, but I know that um, it's not going to look anything like we have today. I mean, I think about, um, you know, the web and when everyone came online first, you had a business like, like Facebook, um, which was a social network. A social network could never exist in brick and mortar. Just physically is not possible. Um, you know, I want to have all these people online in one place um, and be able to talk kind of just freely and openly. That was just this completely new paradigm that only the web could offer us. And with the idea of blockchains and immutability and censorship resistance, um, and, and ultimate transparency and guarantees. Now you get systems that I'm not really sure what they're going to look like, but it's, it is going to look unlike anything that we've ever seen. And so, you know, think about um, virtual reality, right? Uh, if you're living in a VR world, you know, you have like the matrix or something like that. We'll use that as an, as an example. Um, and I own property in that world. Well, how on earth am I going to make sure that that property is mine, that no one can take it away from me? How can I have those rights as a human in that system? And when you start to wrap your head around it, you begin to realize the only way that's possible is if it's secured by a blockchain, right? Um, and so I'm that's what I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm watching The Matrix again. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got to plug in, right? Um, so I think that we've, I think we've covered a pretty wide range of topics here um, that, frankly, can take a lot of time to get into. So when you start thinking about the ways you got into crypto, when you got into crypto, how you initially learned about it, as well as things you look at now, like what do you think are some of the most important resources that you use to keep learning and stay on top of all of these different issues? Yeah, that's a good question, and and I think. Um, the hardest thing to do with crypto is stay on top of everything that's happening. I humbly think it's almost impossible. Um, there are just so many teams, so many things, um, so many developments that um, you really have to know where to focus your time, but also be okay with knowing you're not going to know everything. Um, and so 
I find myself, uh, I find myself using um, a lot of the social platforms the most and interacting with other people is how I learn best. So David talked about in the beginning of this podcast, the telegram group that I run, that's been an awesome way to have like an open discussion, um, free, honest discussion with some other investors in the space. I've learned so much from that. Um, but I think anyone else, if they're looking to get into the, themselves, there's some other things that I do that anyone can do, which is can go into Twitter. I can follow every expert in the space and I can engage with them. And guess what? They'll engage with me right back. Um, that's actually how um, I would say I joined the ecosystem back in 2013. I just spun up a Twitter account and started talking about crypto because I didn't have anyone else to talk with about it. Um, so I find that those platforms are great. Um, other chats, just you know, the project chats. So going into the maker chat, going into the auger chat, um, you can learn a lot of domain-specific knowledge there. Um, and then finally, I'd say uh, the media that is produced for free in this industry is absolutely amazing. So go and look at every single YouTube talk from the last conference that maybe attendees paid $1,000 to go. Well, it's completely free to go see it on YouTube after the fact. Um, or if I want to go on um, and learn about a new scalability protocol, their founders have probably been on multiple podcasts that are on Apple podcasts that I can go and download and, and listen to wherever I'd like. And I just think that access, that um, democratization of information is one thing that makes this um, space really special um, and has made learning um, really fun as well. So to wrap up, I, I like to do this now, and uh, it's what I would call 30 seconds to get to know you. And so 30 seconds to get to know Spencer. I'm just going to ask two quick ones, and maybe Amanda can come up with one. But I'm going to ask you, and we weren't really prepared for this, but I'm sure you're pretty, you can get on this, but your favorite book as of right now? Ooh, favorite book as of right now. Um and I ask because crypto, if for many people who are in it and people who are just trying to experience it, crypto is a multidisciplinary asset and technology. And so I know myself, I read everything from computer science to cryptography. And now I've been spending a lot of my time on psychology uh, from the likes of Kahneman to Ariely and a lot of others. And so people like Spencer and Amanda and others out there are reading incessantly because there's so much that we need to try to grasp as we're changing society and changing the way that we look at money and the way that we look at ourselves. And so that's, I know it's a loaded question, Spencer. But Yeah, no, 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 you're good. So I'm just really bad with titles. So I went back in my notes and found it. Um, so there's two books that I'm reading right now that I love. Um, and they are Austrian economics books. One is called How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes, and another is called Economics and One Lesson. Um, they were recommended to me by um, uh, one of my Bitcoin maximalist friends, uh, Arjun Balaji. And I, I, love these, I love this book because if you think about Austrian economics, it's a, it's a big staple of many Bitcoin maximalists, right? You, you um, hear about the principles that um, Austrian economics has, why it's preferable to um, alternative systems, and um, I think just growing awareness that um, 
you know, crypto systems um, kind of enable this this vision um, for them. And I I didn't you know transparently didn't know a lot about it. Um, and so I got these racks, read the books, and kind of had that eureka moment that these principles, um, they actually apply to much more than Bitcoin. And they're, they're pretty pervasive in most of the crypto networks out there. Um, I think one of the core ideas that has really permeated with me is it's not you know, necessarily the idea of a hard cap that is Austrian, right? Um, that, you know, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. It's the idea that um, the supply of Bitcoin is, is not able to be arbitrarily inflated, right? And the, the negative things that happen when um, arbitrary actions um, can kind of happen on a, on a crypto system. And when you kind of make that discovery, you realize that even Ethereum at a 1% or lower inflation rate um, is copacetic with Austrian economics principles. Um, and so I'd say for me, that's been a, a good one to, uh, to dive into. Wow. I'm currently reading a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And I feel like that's significantly less impactful than hearing about Austrian economics. <laughs> <laughs> Although I guess, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that's a book for work or for fun, but it's um, it's interesting in the context of the crypto ecosystem nonetheless. Um, and then I have one question for you. I don't know if you're into Game of Thrones, but um, if you could be a Game of Thrones character, who would you be? I'm not a Game of Thrones person at all. Not a Game of Thrones person? <laughs> okay, we actually, I don't know if you know this, but since you said that, this episode is getting deleted. You can't be on our show anymore. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, no, well, wow, not I, a Game I, of Thrones person. Well, Spencer, I, it, 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 I was going to say it was nice to have you on, but I think because me and Amanda are such GOT fans, I think we're just going to kind of have to rewrite that one and say, uh, guess not thank you for being on. Oh. <laughs> but it was, I think my, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just going to say it was really great getting you on, having a family office, you know, having an investor that's obviously backed by a family office. And talking about the infrastructure and the future and the innovation that's happening in Ethereum, it was really, you know, it was special for us to hear and for the listeners to obviously get to know that. Um, if there are people who are trying to maybe, you know, other family offices that might want to kind of talk with you or get to, you know, you know, see what you're up to, is there any place that maybe you want them to find you on Twitter or, or, or LinkedIn or any other places? Yeah, I think um, Twitter is definitely the best place to find me. I'm at Spencer Noon, um, just my name. Uh, and yeah, that's probably the best way to get in touch. I'm more than happy to speak to anyone in the space who, who's interested, um, and especially family offices. It's been um, really exciting for us to, to have div I, you know, dived into this space for a while. Um, and we're super excited about it and how it's going to unfold in the coming years. Amazing. Well, this was Spencer Noon at DTC Capital. Thank you, Spencer, for joining us on Base Layer. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks a lot, guys. Take care.